welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast. It's a podcast about classical stuff, old books, old thoughts, old philosophy. And today we're going to talk about words, specifically the market of words. I hate this so much. (laughs) What they're worth. It pains me. Like what, are, what are the, the pun, words worth? The, the pun pains me. <laughs> the voice pains me. I just it's like listening to a bad baseball play-by-play. Mm. That's what I was shooting for. Oh. Well, we, I, you, apparently, you I nailed it. it. You nailed yeah. it. Good yeah. job. Um, did you introduce the podcast? <laughs> oh, you did. Yes. Did you black out for those thirty seconds? I did. I didn't say who we were. I cringed so hard that I like curled in on myself. <laughs> Fine. Again, I won't talk Hi, in the podcast we're classical anymore. Stuff you should know. AJ's the one talking right now. I'm Thomas, and Graham is the one Are who's chips? leading Freaking the Freaking screw you guys. You, you don't eat a chip. You're going to eat a chip during our episode? Fine. <laughs> I won't talk or eat chips. <laughs> I, I have no options anymore. You're Can like, we this do this again? It's unreasonable. No. <laughs> Keep it going. This is what people... I'm AJ Hannenberg. I'm here with Graham and... Thomas, who won't you let forgot me my eat name. chips. Graham forgot my name in the last episode. <laughs> you forgot my name right now. What is happening? Do I exist? You're nailing it. This is going great. Screw you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Quit. Graham, what you got? Wow. Happy episode 200 yeah. what also. An, what? Is this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is 200? <laughs> episode 200. <laughs> I hate this so much. <laughs> oh, my word. That can't be our intro. That has I to be can't. the intro. No, this, this, this is the perfect classical stuff. This has to be an Easter egg. Can't nope, we have this, this is as an Easter egg? Keep it going. No. Happy 200, everyone. We Happy made it. 200. Oh. You, all, you all keep downloading these episodes, and we keep recording oh, them. Word. Hello, everyone. Uh, all right. <laughs> Graham, I think you're leading this episode. Yes. So today we are going to be talking about a poet named Will. Oh my word! Named, Wordsworth. Named William. Oh my word! Wordsworth. Um, yeah, talking about romantic poetry, and um, it was going to be a bit of a serious topic, but I guess <laughs> you can still do a serious. Yeah. Topic. You got to let me know when you're going to go serious with it, so I can cha- switch up my intro. It's all right. You would do the exact same intro. I'd probably do this. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about sort of. Uh, two poems that Wordsworth wrote. So Wordsworth is a romantic poet. Um, we've talked about romanticism on the podcast before. You can, uh, we've done a whole episode on the concept of sort of romantic deep joy many, many, many podcasts ago. Um, and a couple of podcasts were talking about Satan as a bit of a romantic hero in Paradise Lost and, the interpre- and how the romantics interpreted older works in order to sort of fit their, I don't know if you want to call romant- romanticism romanticism and ethos or fits into their sort of worldview. Um, but I kind of wanted to read two poems of Wordsworth because in it, the first poem he, he, it's called Tinder Nabby. I don't know if I want to read the whole poem. It's pretty long. Uh, I'll probably read part of it. Um, and, uh, it's Wordsworth as a young man talking about how to deal with the disappointment of life as you grow older. Um, I mean, that, that's one element. The whole poem, the poem is about a lot of stuff, but that's, that's sort of one element that he leaves. And then another poem that he wrote a little later in his life called Elegiac Stanzas, um, where he also is talking about how to deal with the disappointment of life, but has a very different portrayal of it. Um, and I kind of want to, he sort of uses two metaphors, one in each poem to talk about how one deals with sort of the, the difficulties of that life can throw your way. Uh, other like the, the sort of the mundane difficulties of just sort of disappointment and boredom, and then also the big serious difficulties that you can have in life, like the death of loved ones and that kind of stuff. And 
Um, I want to sort of frame these things, and I want to ask you guys which one you think is the better course of action to adopt. If you needed to adopt a point of view of how you were going to um, sort of think about the difficulties of life, which one do you think is more is the is the is the, um, the more appropriate action? You write a takedown piece for Vice. Yeah, that's 100%. right. That's a great. You write yeah. you write a, write a takedown piece for Vice. Yeah, like if I if I'm having something unfortunate happen, I'm going to take them down. I'm oh. going to write write an article about it. Sounds it. like you're doing a takedown of yourself though, because it's yeah. like the uh, the misery of your own life. No, no. If, if somebody else wreaked like that gave misery a traffic on ticket me, or something. Oh, okay. yeah. oh yeah. Like I'm going to expose defund them. the police, right? Yeah. yeah. But isn't Wordsworth is talking about like with his own disappointment, right? Kind of. He's talking about with his own disappointments, but he's also talking about the disappointment that kind of growing up, aging and not and not having the world be filled with magic is uh, one of his big problems. Okay. Is, so let me phrase Tinder Nabby, because Tinder Nabby kind of shows the romantic problem, which I know we've talked about in earlier episodes. Um, and so let me sort of phrase how Wordsworth talks about the romantic problem. So Tinder Nabby is a poem about Wordsworth going back to a place that he went to when he was a young man. In fact, both of these poems are going to have, are going to deal with memories of previous happy times. And he's going back to a place that he was at years ago, five years. And when he was there, he had that sort of deep joy moment, this moment of perfect peace and calmness where nature seemed to open up to him. And he had this, this experience of sort of almost transcendent, a transcendent experience of beauty. So Wordsworth had this when he was young. And then he's come back to Tintern Abbey and it's not happening. He's come back, same kind of day, same kind of like temperature, sitting on the same spot, and he's not having this transcendent moment of beauty. It's just sort of not there. And he's writing this poem to his sister, telling her about the fact that when you're young, you have these transcendent moments of beauty, and then when you're older, you don't have them, but we can take comfort in the fact that we've had them. And if we can kind of enshrine those moments in our memory and build up, he says, build up a mansion for them, then they can be, then they can sort of sustain us through life. That's what he, that's sort of what he's building, he's talking about in in Tintern Abbey. And AJ, you're already looking skeptical. Live in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like where we get the word romanticizing, to romanticize something. Jeez Louise, that's rough. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of debating whether you want me to read, I mean, the thing is like, is it long? It's three pages of a poem. Hmm. It'll we, probably we, take like three minutes. We did three pages for a lay party. So I feel like you should do three pages now. Yeah. Cause the next one's not that long. The next one's not that long. So let's do, let's just okay, do it. I want to like, the thing is, it's like he puts his ideas and it's sprinkled out through the whole poem. I kind of feel like if I don't read the whole thing, I'm going to end up reading the vast majority of it, trying to summarize it anyway. Just read it. Okay. I'll just read it. Okay. okay. Buckle up for some poetry, listener. And this is kind of nice for the 200th episode. So Tintern Abbey. Five years have passed. Five summers with the length of five long winters. And again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a soft inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day is come when I again repose here under this dark sycamore, 
and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which at this season, with their unripe fruits, are clad in one green hue, and lose themselves mid groves and copses. Once again I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild, these pastoral farms green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke send up in silence from among the trees. With some uncertain notice, as might seem of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods, or of some hermit's cave, where, by his fire, the hermit sits alone. These beauteous forms, through a long absence, have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft, in lonely rooms and midst the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration. Feelings, too, of unremembered pleasure, such, perhaps, as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less, I trust, to them I have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid to a sleep in body and become a living soul, uh, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. If this be but a vain belief, yet, oh, how oft in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan, why, thou wanderer through the woods, how often has my spirit turned to thee. And now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint, and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again. While here I stand, not only with the sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in this moment there is life and food for future years. And so I dare to hope, though changed, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when, like a row, I bounded o'er the mountains, by the side of the deep rivers and the lonely streams, wherever nature led, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. For nature then, the coarser pleasure of my boyish days and their glad animal movements all gone by, to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied, nor any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time is past and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint I, nor mourn, nor murmur, 
other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still, sad music of humanity, nor harsh, nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thoughts, and rolls through all things. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and the mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul, of all my mortal being. Nor perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay. For thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river, thou my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend. And in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart, and read my former pleasure in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. Oh, yet a little wild, may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear sister. And this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Tis her privilege, through all the years of this our life, to lead from joy to joy. For she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impress with quietness and beauty, and so feed with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall ever prevail against us, or disturb our cheerful faith, that all which we behold is full of blessings." Therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee. And in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies, oh, then, if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion— with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me and these my exhortations? Nor perchance, if I should be where I no more can hear thy voice, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence, wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshipper of nature, hither came unwearied in that service, Rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear, both for themselves and for thy sake. Okay, so there's his poem. Yeah. Like I said, there's a lot going on in there. Yeah, can you can you give me like the quick bird's eye view? So the quick bird's eye view is he is basically building up almost like this philosophy of dealing with life, saying that the moments of beauty that we've had can be 
if we can mem- remember them, and if we can build up a storehouse of them in our minds, so it's almost like Happy Gilmore's happy place, right? Go to your happy place. Mm-hmm. If we can have the happy place and do the job of constructing them in our minds, then he says, whatever life will throw at you, he says, will, have, will not work. Will not, so he says, um, where it says, um, he says, when these wild ecstasies, so the crazy, these moments of like joy of being young and experiencing all these wonderful things, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place, then um, if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, um, remember these things. So he's basically saying like, build up the storehouse of experiences of beauty and um, they will almost refine you to a place where the crappiness of life doesn't affect you. Is that, do you think that's fair from what you guys heard? Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I guess, so the first question for that is, do you, A, does he have a point or does this come across as naive? This is the question I asked my, my 10th graders. Does he have a point? Can those moments, the, do, do the high moments, the pleasurable moments of life, uh, be, moments of, of being profoundly influenced by beauty, do they have, as he says, no slight or trivial influence on that best portions of a good man's life? Or do you think that they, that he's being naive and this is just, well, like you were saying, romanticizing the past? Thomas? AJ? (laughs) Thomas. (laughs) Your thoughts? Sure. Do you want to go first? Sure. We we can do this all day. We could. 200th episode. Here we go. Episode 200. (laughs) Episode 200, everybody. So, Let's name everyone on this podcast, guys. <laughs> Go for all it. right. So, what I to me it sounds sounds like the Stoics. They're going. They get to the same place, but through different avenues. Mm-hmm. He wants to be in a place unassailable by pain, right? I mean, it's where Buddha is also trying to get you, right? A place that where you're not feeling all the vicissitudes of life. Mm-hmm. I like the way the Stoics do it better. They want to get to a place of personal virtue where the outside things, if you have a good perspective of them, don't necessarily matter. That seems far more unassailable to me, although maybe not completely healthy, right? We did talk about how there are times it should be emotional to this where if you're, you know, if your family dies, me thinking of that time I sat in a field isn't going to be a good balm for that. But, I mean, maybe it's even profounder because he ends the poem by saying... The fact that also, sister, that I've shared this with you, right, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were more dear both for themselves and for thy sake. So the fact that you too have experienced this moment of beauty. And he's also saying the fact that you, sister, seem to have had as much a profound effect by this beautiful scene that I has, I I has, that I have, (laughs) makes me realize, makes me sort of enjoy this place more, right? Like, you, you loved Whitworth, your years at Whitworth, right? Mm-hmm. And if one of our students graduated and also loved Whitworth and came back and told you how much he loved Whitworth, like, Wordsworth is saying that makes him love Whitworth even more because someone else has saw what I saw and, and had a moving experience there that I had. Sure. I would love the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. I still don't feel like this is going to sustain me in my future years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? The time is gone. Uh, maybe it's just, be, I'm seven, yeah. right? I'm a forward looking person. I like to think about the future. I like to think about new ideas and new projects and not 
necessarily hang on to the past. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not sure it's healthy. Then do moments of beauty have any kind of formative benefit for people? Yeah, I think... Sorry, my computer keeps on turning on weird. Um, I think the, the place they fit into life is not as a hedge against sorrow. Yeah. I think they pl- the place they fit into life is where you have a healthy attitude about things around you. I think love for nature is part of a healthy attitude towards life. I think enjoying things with people that you love are also part of a healthy attitude towards life. Where Mm -hmm. I get hung up is where he wants to use that as a hedge against the bad things that are coming down the road. Yeah, he calls it, he calls the memory of these beautiful moments, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul. So if you think about each of those, if you take each of those things individually, the nurse, the thing that's going to bring me back from sickness, the guide, the thing that's going to like put me on the way, the guardian of my heart, the thing that's going to keep me from... The bad stuff. That's a lot of jobs to put on some good experiences in nature. Not just experience, but I think I don't think it's just like experience. I mean, nature is the vehicle through which he had the experience of beauty. So I think we can open it up to not just... Just beauty? I cried on a mountain, but um, that he's saying that moments of... Experiences of transcendental beauty are important for the almost like emotional development of people... Insofar, because they are going to be, like he's, he claims, to be sort of hedges against the crappiness of life. Um, yeah, that's the way I think he's spot on that if you're taking the expanded definition of what those moments of beauty are, think of you, I, uh, I think, I, I, AJ, your episode on the praise of folly is one that I like a lot. And I think there's an overlap here between those two of there are lots of things in life we wouldn't do if we didn't have some folly. And in the same way, we're like overwhelmed by a desire for beauty to pursue love or to take big risks in our lives. And sometimes we can get off track from pursuing those things. And so we almost have to have that memory of what was first special about this relationship or what did I love about this business or, um, or think of like old friendships, like having those old memories together is what maintains a friendship even when you move to different cities. So um, they, beauty can't do everything. And of course, romantics have their excesses, but there's just something so powerful in that those moments of beauty break through rationality or break through some other barrier. And that's what makes them something to hold on to. You don't have the emotional experience of the birth of your first child every day, but to have that memory of, I love this child so much, and this was a moment that really showed it, you have to carry that with you or else you lose something. And for the poet or for Wordsworth, you need to, ens- you need to do the work of enshrining, th- of doing your best to enshrine that feeling or that sentiment or that experience into something concrete. Right. So for a poet, it's a poem. Um, for a musician, it's a piece of music. Trying to capture the, the, the feeling so that you can go back to it and try to coax the feeling back out. But Not on demand, but you know what I mean. But you could write down the story and have a short story of yes. it. You could take a picture, mm-hmm. um, paint mm-hmm. a picture, something yep. like that. So even I love, like, so then you're surrounding yourselves with those things of beauty that mean something to you. That sounds great, right? So on the, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to the idea. But on the other hand, I mean, AJ's point, 
Uh, I, I can go to a cynical place where I remember I was talking to somebody when they were what their job was or what their foundation was doing was they were trying to like put beautiful pieces of art into like cancer wards and like hospices and places where people are dying and experiencing real difficulties. And their mentality was, well, beauty is an end in and of itself. And putting these beautiful things in there is sort of raising the quality of life, of the life of the people that they have who are sort of, um, are dying. And like I said, there's sort of two sides to me. One side that says like, that's actually a noble thing. And there's the other side that's like, back, like, wouldn't you just rather not, like, wouldn't you rather focus on the material difficulty, which is the illness? And I don't know. I, um, that, that beauty is not going to save you. But then on the other hand, like Wordsworth has a point where he's like, you know, you'd rather have it than not. That's um, the, you'd rather have the cure than not. So then, mm-hmm. okay. It's only, these are two separate tracks. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. The, Cause it's not like the, the funding that puts pieces of art in a hospital is nowhere near the level to solve cancer. Yeah. So then, okay, well then let's have the scientists and researchers work on the cure. And then what do we do with the space that these people are put in? And mm-hmm. like, do you want it to be a blank sort of bleak and cubicle? utilitarian? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like is, how is that a better um, situation for them? So yeah, I think there's a place for beauty and all this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more open to Wordsworth than I expected to be. There you go. You might have more resonance with the second poem. Maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. Beauty needs to be part of our lives. And the part about wanting to put famous paintings in a cancer ward makes me actually more amenable to this whole idea. Yeah, yeah. The problem is where he says, it is my nurse, it is my guide, it is my... It can't do all those things. It, it, can't, it, it shouldn't be doing all those things, right? I think he's putting too much weight on it. Those are shoulders that should bear some peace in our lives, but as one member carrying a pallet, they can't carry the whole load. Yes. Knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. And then he says, "'Tis her privilege through all the years of our life to lead from joy to joy. For she can so inform the mind that is within us with quietness and beauty and Sophie with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor the dreary intercourse of daily life shall ever prevail against us or ever disturb our cheerful faith. I, whenever I read Wordsworth, I always flip back and forth between, is he naive? And he's saying like, happy thoughts and memory of beauty. Like it's basically like sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Like, is he, is he sort of like being naive and childish in saying that, you know, the, uh, the world can't penetrate his armor because he's in his happy place or take the positive view of it and saying that like, maybe he has, maybe this is just a mindset thing. He has found some sort of stoic secret, which is not, he's not, he's not um, building it up on personal virtue, but he's building it up on meaningful experience. And that's probably the, that's probably the big difference between the romantics and the stoics. The stoics say, is it fair in saying that the stoics, their fortress is, their personal virtue. Yes. And then the romantics, their fortress is meaningful, beautiful experiences. Yeah, that's fair. Well, you can see how this kind of thing a hundred years later gets you, or maybe even almost, yeah, a hundred years later gets you Oscar Wilde, right. And sort of surrounding yourself from beauty for, for the completely for the sake of beauty. And, um, yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm wary of. The, 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 aesthete, aesthete, a word I can't pronounce the person who just, 
basically says, like, beauty will save the world. And those certain sort of nonsense phrases like that. Yeah, it's, I think it's when it's pursued at expense of other things, right? Pursue, pursue beautiful experiences rather than personal virtue instead of having personal experience or beautiful experiences be a portion of a healthy life that includes personal virtue. Yeah. Um, the divorce of beauty and goodness may be one of the big downfalls of the romantics. Um, that maybe you don't see this so much in Wordsworth, but you see this in other romantics that um, they see beauty as a sort of own category. They see beauty as a transcendental, which it is, but they divorce it from truth and goodness, which is um, sort of the classical transcendental. So one of the reasons why I've sort of been in harping on this romanticism kick for the past couple of episodes is because I'm convinced that we live, that our culture is a very romantic one that has driven big sort of wedges between beauty, truth, and goodness and sort of sequestered them off into their own categories that have no interplay with each other. Whereas in the classical world, in the ancient world, in the Christian world, those three, am I correct in saying that those are the transcendentals? I think <clears throat> the list changes. Yeah. Uh, but How can the transcendentals change? But truth, goodness, beauty, and unity, I think, are oh, typically yeah, unity. the four. Okay, well, we can talk about unity another time. Well, I, I know, unity is a weird one. No, no, no. I think that's what you are implying is they shouldn't be yes. separated. Mm-hmm. These, and that's, right. that's yes. unity, right? Exactly. And, and they, the notion of the transcendentals is that you take them far enough, and essentially, I think it, they become one, right? Like, yeah. they are all sort Good. of combined into each other. Yeah. Could be wrong about that. Whereas but. what the romantics are doing is they are saying the beauty is all you need, like, I mean, Keats, beauty is all you need to know. On this earth, uh, beauty is all there is and all you need to know. That's how he ends um, uh, one of his poems. This is a different poet. Uh, um, Ode to a Grecian urn. Beauty is all you need. Um, and so the, what the romantics have done is they've taken beauty, truth, and goodness and sort of cordoned them off from one another yeah. and then are confused as to why it can't do all of the work of what truly, truth, beauty, and goodness are purport to be able to do. But Wordsworth thinks it can do all that work. Wordsworth does think he can, does it? At least in Tintern Abbey. Right. I guess we'll see what the next And so what poem. I want to read to you is his book, his next poem, Elegiac Stanzas, which he wrote like 15 years later. It's not a huge amount of time, but some sort of tragedies happened. I think his sister, who he was talking about in this poem, died. I think that's who the elegy is for. Elegy is a, um, a poem one reads at a funeral, right? Is that correct? Hannenberg, elegies are poems you read at a funeral. Eulogies are speeches you read at a funeral. A poem of serious reflection, typically a lament for the dead. Yeah, okay, cool. So an elegy. So he's writing elegiac stanzas. Uh, I think his sisters died. He makes some sort of reference to um, a feeling of my loss will never be old. And so I don't really know what he's referring to. Um, but regardless, he's making reference to the, to the loss. All right. So if in Tintern Abbey, the first poem we read, if he is saying, if the image he's using is build a mansion of, in order to house your beautiful memories. I sort of, so think of it as like a museum or a mansion. Build a house, put your photo albums in there. Whenever you're sad, dip into those photo albums and they will have life and food for future years. Hang out in the house a bit. That's, yeah. yeah, that's his image for sustenance, like emotional sustenance in the world is the mansion, the mansion of memories. Mm-hmm. Okay, next one, elegiac stanzas. I'll read this one, it's shorter. Um, so it says, suggested by a picture of Peel Castle in a storm painted by Sir George Beaumont. Um, Sir George Beaumont was a, was a painter and he painted this castle, Peel Castle, in a storm 
and there's like this little sad boat off the coast. It looks like it's about to get swamped by the storm. And the castle is being absolutely just rocked by wind and waves and rain. So like a scary sort of a picture of high passions, uh, scary storm. Wordsworth had spent a summer at Peel by this castle. And he says that when he was there, there was, it was perfect, beautiful weather the whole time. So if someone were to stop him on the street and say, have you ever been to Peel Castle? The image he has in his mind is like peaceful, beautiful, glassy sea and the tower there. And Beaumont has painted it completely under a storm, being absolutely wrecked. Right. Yeah. You found the picture. It's, yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Doesn't look like a good day. Does not look like a good day. It's looking rough. So here's Wordsworth reflecting on a painting of this castle getting, getting stormed. <laughs> Storm the castle. Storm the castle. Nice. I was thy neighbor once, thou rugged pile. Four summer weeks I dwelt in sight of thee. I saw thee every day, and all the while thy form was sleeping on a glassy sea. So pure the sky, so quiet was the air, so like, so very like was day to day. Whene'er I looked, thy image still was there. It trembled, but it never passed away. How perfect was the calm. It seemed no sleep, no mood which season takes away or brings. I could have fancied that the mighty deep was even the gentlest of all gentle things. Ah, then, if mine had been the painter's hand to express what then I saw and add the gleam, the light that never was on sea or land, the consecration and the poet's dream, I would have planted thee, thou hoary pile, amid how different from a world how different from this. Beside a sea that could not cease to smile, on tranquil land beneath a sky of bliss, thou shouldest have seemed a treasure house divine of peaceful years, a chronicle of heaven, of all the sunbeams that did ever shine, the very sweetness had to thee been given. A picture had it been of lasting ease, Elysian quiet without toil or strife, no motion but the moving tide, a breeze or merely silent nature's breathing life. Such, in the fine illusion of my heart, such picture would I at that time have made, and seen the soul of truth in every part, a steadfast peace that might not be betrayed. So once it would have been, tis so no more. I have submitted to new control. A power is gone with which nothing can restore. A deep distress hath humanized my soul. Not for a moment could I now behold a smiling sea and be what I have been. The feeling of my loss will ne'er be old. This which I know I speak with mind serene. Then Beaumont friend, who would have been the friend if he had lived, of him whom I deplore, this work of thine I blame not, but commend this sea in anger and that dismal shore. Oh, tis a passionate work, yet wise and well, well chosen is the spirit that is here. That hulk which labors in the deadly swell, this rueful sky, this pageantry of fear, and this huge castle, standing here sublime, I love to see the look with which it braves, caused in the unfeeling armor of old time, the lightning, the fierce wind, and trampling waves. Farewell, farewell, the heart that lives alone, housed in a dream, at distance from the kind. Such happiness, wherever it be known, is to be pitied, for tis surely blind. But welcome fortitude, and patient cheer, and frequent sights of what is to be borne. Such sights are worse as are before me here. 
not without hope we suffer and we mourn. Okay. Oh, I'm into that one. So completely different image. So what's the image of Hamburg? So he's remembering a time when he was at the castle and he's like, man, if I would have painted that, it'd been so nice, but I like this one better. And why does he like this one better? Because he says the the soul that is locked up in a house, where is it? Uh, farewell, farewell, the heart that lives alone. Yeah, where is it? It's the second last oh, stanza. Yeah. Farewell, farewell, the heart that lives alone, housed in a dream at distance from the kind. Yeah. So if you are there looking at beautiful things all day and there's no toil and no work and you're just in heaven, that's not, it's not what reality is, right? You're not not in a good place. Yeah. It's much better to like know what is coming and yet have fortitude and hope for it. So he says old Wordsworth, old Wordsworth, if he could paint, which he can't, the only, the, he could only paint with words. So he said if, if old Wordsworth was going to paint this castle, he would have painted peaceful castle, calm sea, beautiful sunshine, peace, calm happiness from my memory, from my experience. I experienced peace and goodness at Peel Castle, and I would want, I would have wanted to enshrine that forever. And then I see a picture of the same place getting absolutely wrecked by nature. And his said, his first reaction was like, ugh, why, why paint it this way? Why do this? Why not paint the happy picture? And then he says, no, New Wordsworth is cool with the castle. New, New Wordsworth looks at the castle and says, yes, that is what we're supposed to be. A, basically the tower in the storm. Um, I love to look at this. What does he say? I love to see the look with which it braves caused in the unfeeling armor of old time, the lightning, the fierce wind, and the trampling waves. So he looks at it and he says, yes. Um, old Wordsworth would have done this. Tis so no more. And then he says, a deep distress hath humanized my soul. Wordsworth says, something has happened that has caused me to realize that you can't sort of dwell in the happy past. You, what you need to be is strong towers. But isn't he just being edgy? Yes, it's kind of explain. Like, so he's saying that like there can be no happiness now. Yeah. And because I understand he's gone through a tragedy and I don't want to downplay that, but to say that because of a tragedy, all of life, all that life has to offer is like the misery, uh, difficult times and hard times. And the only response to that is to harden yes. oneself to, to be prepared for the buffeting of the winds and the, the rain just seems like he's swung so wildly. Yeah, um, what kind of armor does he say you have to be in? Uh, old time. Yes, unfeeling, the unfeeling, unfeeling armor. armor of old yeah. time. So there's almost like a... So, but been he, through it. <laughs> right, but as opposed to the first poem, which is that we should stir up the right emotions. We should store up these old emotions that we have to kind of uncork them every once in a while to, to taste and remind ourselves. We now have to remove the feeling, uh, and that's. I don't, I don't. He's not. I don't think he's saying this. We need. We need art that reinforces that we should yes. not be feeling. Yeah. Um, old Wordsworth. So Tinter Abbey Wordsworth says we need to say, we need to stay soft and feeling, and like receptive to the memories of beauty. And mean people can say mean things, but they'll bounce right off us because we have that mansion of. Memories. Because I'm thinking about an orchard. Yeah. Right. But new, <laughs> older, but then Wordsworth of Elegiac Stanza says, you need to like lock your, you need to sort of build a unfeeling armor around you to withstand the, the fierce winds because 
life is hard. And because if you're up there thinking about an orchard, you're you're a blind fool. That's right. And so part of me, you know, so I look at this and I say Wordsworth is sort of now talking about two two sides of the same coin, which is how does one deal with life? How does one deal with with either the high difficulties or the mundane difficulties of, of life? Um, and he posits two solutions, and both of them fi- seem crappy. Um, the first one is like is build up a little mansion of memories, and that seems naive. And sure. like as they just sort of pointed out, like you're gonna get run over. Right. Well, here's Wordsworth run over, and he says, what you got to do is, like, lock yourself in your tower of solitude. That doesn't seem great either. Yeah, it seems like his, I guess I didn't read it this way, and I should have. The Mm. first poem I I viewed more as just a collection of those past memories as something to turn back to. He means only the good ones, and that's maybe the naive part, right? he means only, yes, I think that's, that's important. He means only the good ones, but also not just the good ones, but also the... He allows himself to be a little to enter a little bit into the sadness of the fact that the good ones have happened and they're not going to happen again. Right. Um, now he doesn't talk about that in this poem. He talks about that more in his prelude, which is his twelve-book-long rambly poem. It's it's a piece of work. I did my master's. I did my undergrad thesis on it. It is a yeah. It's a woofer. And do you regret that? Uh, kind <laughs> of. Um, I really liked Wordsworth when I was twenty-two yeah, or twenty-one. Exactly. And then when I started, I feel things about orchards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I started writing my my dissertation on it, and then when I and then I I realized like, oh, this is bankrupt. Um, And then I did a master's degree on C.S. Lewis's critique of romanticism for basically these points, which is you're you're taking beauty and you're cutting it off from truth and goodness, and you're wanting beauty to give you everything, and it can't. And these are two poems of Wordsworth kind of like floundering to have the memories of beauty supply everything for him. And when they can't, when Tintern Abbey can't follow through with what he says are the promises, nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Well, here's a poem of nature Whoa. betraying the crap out of him. Yeah, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and now he's saying like, well, it's time to like button up and, and lock myself in the tower of unfeeling armor. And this is actually what Wordsworth did. He really? became like a grumpy old man. That's a bummer. Really? Uh, yeah, he became like a conservative member of parliament. Did he still write <laughs> poetry after this? Um, after elegiac stanzas, he did. He was also profoundly shaken about the French Revolution. Huh. He was like, he's like, oh, this is, you know, m- these are uh, modern ideas come to fruition. We're going to usher in a kingdom of rationality. And then he was like, oh, they're cutting everyone's heads off. Whoops. <laughs> That's not great. Yeah. Um, so that was a profound... Um, there's probably an episode on Burke's reflections on the French Revolution we need to do at some point. Um, but um, I just, yeah, there's the, um, the danger of, of psychologizing your experiences as the medicine for like your future life is, I think it's dangerous and I think it's everywhere in our modern society. Own your story, uh, um, uh, you know, Oh, because you, you know, you only, you only, I know it's a cliche, you only live once. So do this thing because you're going to want to like, remember this when you're older. Um, 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 yeah. I remember I knew someone in college who would talk about the harem of his mind. I don't like that at all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that doesn't feel good. Yeah, yeah. No, and he bad. really bought into that idea of like what he wanted to do was have the memories that he would be. He's like, one day I'm going to be old and gross and I want to be able to live in the harem of my mind. And I was like, 
That's gross. But oh, it, man. What a sorry. word choice. Sorry. Come on, man. This, like, is what he, just, this is what he was talking about. But that's very much the room. This, <laughs> but harem? Yeah, I know. So Wordsworth doesn't, doesn't go that far. But it's, you can easily see how somebody can. Yeah. Somebody who is a little less, a little less, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know. Wordsworth is like a little more gentlemanly in his pleasures. Um, but you could easily see how somebody who isn't still holds this ethos as yeah. this is justifying for my sort of like so then are, happiness. Are you, are you saying this has been kind of devolved into a form that is just seeking out pleasure? Because again, it's, it's the same thing of like uh, Epicureanism just has bad PR because really mm-hmm. like the pleasures that the Epicureans seek are the pleasures of a good life. Like it's not only going out and eating good food. Um, though, though it's a part of it, but, um, yeah, just, uh, but Wordsworth is like a gateway, a gateway poet. Well, cause like, <laughs> cause if, if we took like the philosophy of Wordsworth mm-hmm. and your point of like keeping your pleasures gentlemanly and like, well, you should like, um, do stuff and, like you should go yeah. out into the world and you should accomplish things and you should be proud of what you accomplished. And that's a form of bottling up these past experiences. Yeah. And then you should have solace in your later years when you can't like, you know, you're not going to go out and start your new business at 80, at 80. Yeah. So, so there's something to what he said. There is something to what he said. And so this is kind of what I'm trying to tease out. Like, where does he go? Where does romanticism go wrong with this? Because I believe we're in episode 200. I believe around episode 100, maybe even, or before Asher was born, we three talked about doing a walking tour of, ah. uh, of England. We were going to go yeah. do the, uh, the, what's it called? Ah, the, good um, times I was. Yeah. The, uh, the, um, the Cotswolds. Uh-huh. We were going to do the Cotswolds yeah. and my wife and Thomas, your wife, were going to like go to Bath and, and uh-huh. go to the spa and we were going to do a walking tour and we all bigged it up and then you had to go have a kid. Sorry about that. Um, no, I was kidding. Then COVID happened. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, you think of this and you're like, those kinds of experiences, yeah, are these, these beautiful moments that you can go back to and, and yeah. when you're sitting around years later being like, oh, that was such a good idea. That was so fun. You're having beers. You're talking about this time. There doesn't, see, that there doesn't seem to be something wrong with that. But there is something about building it up into this edifice of everything that Wordsworth is doing yes. that takes it to that place of, of where, yeah, AJ, I think you said it well, where it's like you're putting a load on it that it can't bear. Yeah. Yeah, um, the... Um, I don't know if this gets at the general question, but I, I think about this with having children that you'll have some people who like love specific points in the life of a child. They love when the kids are babies mm-hmm. and like, Oh, babies are great and they're cute and they're cuddly. Well then they grow out of that because mm-hmm. ki- kids always grow up. So they have another baby and your kid is <laughs> begging you for a phone and gossiping about his friends. Yeah. But so there has to be that balance between yes, you enjoy the memories, but you also have to love the person as they are right now. And that's, you know, um, so I, like, that's the, that's what you, that's where you want something of both where yes, you either appreciate or are proud of the choices you made in the past, but mm-hmm. also you are living a good life now. And yes. It, and, I, it, and I think that is the important takeaway is both of these things. Wordsworth is wanting to use Wordsworth is, tr- is like, has a relationship with his memory in a way that is that he's trying to use as a crutch or as a bomb or as a a BALM bomb <laughs> as a <laughs> um yeah. or as a nurse right and so then that raises the question okay if i graham presenting this am thinking that that both of those methods are not good romanticizing and living in the in the mansion of your memories mm-hmm. or armoring yourself into the tower of solitude 
but I think both of those things aren't right, then what ought our relationship with our memories be and what, I guess, utility do they have for our present life, for, for, for us now? We don't, do we forget them? Do we move on? Do we, like, not think about them because, like, only, only the moment matters? Or do we build up narratives about where we came from? I think about, you know, you don't spend too long in, in a Christian context until someone says, hey, what's your testimony? How does God work in your life? <laughs> sure. And then you're presented with this really strange, difficult situation of saying, like, how do I summarize 30 years of experience to talk about a thread of God moving to bring me to some sort of point of confession, right? Like, that's a hard, our relationship with our past and our relationship with our memories is a difficult thing. Um, and so, yeah, so I, um, maybe this, is, this isn't a very pointed question, but it's like, what should our relationship to our past selves be? So what's the healthy way? What's the healthy thing? Anyway. It's a hard question. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I always try to remember when I'm thinking about the past is that the past lends a rosy gloss to everything, right? Just like we look at old pictures of hikes that we took with our family. Well, what you're not remembering is that your little sister complained the whole time that you guys ran out of water halfway through, that your legs were tired and that you had, you know, finals the next day or whatever it was. And, but you look at this picture and you think, oh, what a wonderful day that was, mm-hmm. right? You'll, you will have those, sure. But I think I try to keep a healthy skepticism to the way that I remember, remember my past. Well, tell, tell us why you deleted Facebook. I always, I always think about this example as like a good example. I have lots of reasons. Which one are you thinking? Oh, when you, you said, uh, when you moved to Austin, you decided to delete Facebook because if you didn't, you would have stayed mentally, your heart would have stayed in Spokane. You would have like kept in those relationships digitally. Mm -hmm. And that felt somehow um, anemic or wrong or unhealthy or yeah, uh, it would have, it would have stripped my passion for here for here. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Um, and, uh, maybe, maybe this other piece of the example for Facebook will help. One of the re- other reasons I gave it up is because it was a facsimile for, mm-hmm. for friendships. So say I wanted to interact with you, right? Yeah. Well, instead of going to talking to you right down the hall, I could get on your Facebook, look at your pictures, maybe type a little thing and then I'm done. Fart, fart, wiggle, wiggle. Fart, fart, wiggle, wiggle. But even if, especially if I didn't type anything, if I just looked at all your pictures, well, I've gotten my fill of Graham. Yeah, yeah. But you haven't gotten your fill of me. It's true. Right? And the friendship is actually slowly starving yeah. because I'm getting a little bit of you, but there's no real friendship there. And so that's what it feels like is he's trying to return to his experience of a nature that has partially existed for him. You're getting my best angles though. That's true. I am. But I'm also getting a curated version of you that's not you. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so he's he's doing that almost with nature. The whole never nature never betrayed the heart of a man who loved her. That's crazy. Tell that to the guy who got eaten by a shark. Y- right. Yes. Um, or like drowned yes. or got struck by lightning. Right. Of course, of course yes. she does. Of course right? she does. And so what I try to do is cultivate an attitude where, like again, it's a create creator not created. Right. So if beauty is an outflowing of the divine. Well, beauty should lead me to think about and appreciate the divine, and the divine will never leave. Mm-hmm. And and I can have really good attitudes about experiences that are even rough. Like maybe I get caught in the rain with my family and we don't have a way home. We haven't eaten lunch. I can either be really angry about it or I can laugh about it, right? And I think trying to be like, oh, I need to go back to a memory of nature I have that'll make me forget the ills of this day is living in the past and it's not having a good attitude for the now. I don't think, just because we've grown up with it, I don't think we realize how much the photograph and the ability to take a video really does 
feed into the kind of thing that Wordsworth is talking about. Like he's saying, the best I can do is try to capture this in a poem, and that doesn't really work. Um, and we try, you know, want to capture everything in a photograph, and it and it, it also doesn't really work. Like you, you can't keep the same feeling that you had when you say, "Oh man, I really," you know, someone get the camera, take a picture of this kind of thing. That kind of impulse, that desire to keep the ephemeral time from moving on. I think wanting to keep that thing alive is a pretty destabilizing thing because you can't do it and it's, and uh, so it, the only experience that it's going to engender is either like some kind of anxiety or, or, um, or just sort of profound disappointment and disillusionment that like time slipping away. Well, your memory can keep it. Like I can keep that feeling in my memory, but memory's a liar. If you, that's memory why you always say it. You can never go back, right? You can never go back. Your memory's a liar. And then over time, the, you've, what you have is now the story you tell as opposed to the actual memory. It's the same problem we've talked about when we talked about how do you tell history. Right. How do you tell your own history? You're, you have the same problem that Herodotus has. It was the same problem that anybody has when they're telling history. What right. is the signal? What is the noise? Um, and um, yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's not as straightforward. Yeah, it's the romantic age that we live in is one that I think the only it leads you in one of two directions. Despondency, like Wordsworth sort of being bummed that he can't, that, that he sort of, um, or, or, or looking back and thinking, oh, I was a naive kid back then, and now I'm going to like toughen up and like, you know, sequester myself in this unfeeling tower. That's as much a terminus to romanticism as I think kind of like spinning off into, into some kind of like unwound sadness, like someone who's just, um, totally living in the past and nothing is great, like Uncle Rico in uh, in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Um, yes. And so... For those who don't get the reference, he's yeah. living in the past. He's living in the Thank past. Yeah. So then, the, yeah, then the, the big question that I think is, okay, then what does the classical tradition tell us should be our relationship to our memory and I'm not, or to the past and to our, our emotions? And I don't know if stoicism is the answer. I just kind of wonder if stoicism is... One I mean, side of romanticism. Yeah, I'm not sure if stoicism even addresses it. Yeah. It's basically saying don't don't get as involved with those things. And always, so... But they had heroes, and they would tell great stories and mm-hmm. sing great songs. Yeah. Like, the, the memory is still kept of certain acts and certain people, mm-hmm. right? Right. I mean, I think stoicism would say, like, you can have any attitude you want to as long as you have the right perspective. And romantics say, hold on to older attitudes to, yeah. to like, fix the bad attitudes you have now. I think both are kind of broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something to the romantic fixation on the emotion of those moments that I'm just uh, not sure how to deal with. And maybe yeah. that's why you can't find a classical analog. Because um, it's not about, again, like your great stories about heroes are about them doing great things, not feeling moved by... Yeah, the romantic poet is is uh, is the person who has felt things more deeply and more profound than anybody else, or played that story for a couple of cycles, um, um, humanizing the person who can find the goodness in the grotesque and the and the debased, and that's the that's the hero, which we talked about last with the Satan with the Satan episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so I, I again, I sort of pause this. I don't know how to feel about Wordsworth, even after all these years. There's part of me that's very sympathetic to the idea, but then there's a part of me that feels if you have that be your foreign policy to the world, it is not going to go well for you. If, you, if you're the strong, t- if you're going to like like lock yourself in the tower, well, 
we have st- we we have stories about people who lock themselves into towers. They're they're you know wizards and 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 can s- do magic. I don't see the problem. And, awesome. and Sauron and and bad things. But then someone who completely like opens themselves up to that nature is going to be the thing that sustains them is also opening themselves up to a um, disappointment. Um, Hmm. Anyway, those, what a funny those are my thing, thoughts. What a funny thing that we're talking about memory on our 200th episode. I know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. There you oh, go. Did you did you plan this? I didn't, but it's um, but maybe it, it is it it is a, a question that I found sort of I find very fascinating, which is what is our relationship to our to the stories we tell ourselves about where we've been and what we've done. Um, I just wonder how many of those are lies. Like if you well, could, exactly. if you could step outside and watch yourself, even even how much we lie to ourselves about our current person, like how much. Well, How you much think, of that is fabricated? You think to yourself, like, oh, man, that episode was terrible. And you go back and listen to it and be like, oh, that was kind of good. Or you end up and be like, that was a gosh darn good episode. And then you go back and you're like, oh. 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 I, I remember some stuff I did in high school. I look back. I felt really good about it at the yeah, time. Yeah. I look back and I was like, what was I thinking? Like poetry slams? <laughs> poetry slams. Those were rough. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's uh, some thoughts on Wordsworth. Well, uh, for our 200th episode. Sorry about that intro, everybody. It was a great intro. So, well, all right. Well, now you don't get an outro. Oh. That's how. That, that's it. 200th episode, and we're done.